Six miles from the shores of Santa Barbara, on the morning of January 28, 1969, workers on Union Oil's Platform A were working to extract a stubborn drill bit from a new well when a sudden blowout shot drilling mud, oil, and natural gas into the air. When the blowout was plugged after 13 minutes, it became clear that the pressure had ruptured the floor of the ocean and dramatic boil-ups of natural gas and oil filled the water around the platform. This began the Santa Barbara oil spill of 1969, the third worst environmental disaster of its kind in the history of the United States, after the Edgewater Horizon blowout and the Exxon Valdez spill. Around noon on the 22nd of June that same year, oily debris on the Cuyahoga River in Ohio caught fire, which in turn ignited the river itself, which was slicked with flammables dumped directly from Riverside Industry. It was the 13th time the river had caught fire since 1868, but this time the public took notice and the incident found its way to national attention on the pages of Time magazine. The ire provoked by the Santa Barbara oil spill raised national attention that was further stoked by the wide-ranging media coverage given to the Cuyahoga River fire. All of this took place on a backdrop of the ongoing highway revolts in the United States and Canada. These were major grassroots protests against new highway development that accused government planners of ignoring local, community, and environmental concerns, and they succeeded in blocking or reversing many highway projects. The carnage of the highway revolts can still be seen in some cities today, with interchanges, on-ramps or off-ramps, that just stop, unfinished. Eventually, each of these could take some credit for the National Environmental Policy Act, which was signed into law on the 1st of January, 1970, establishing environmental guidelines and the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA. But there is another often overlooked story in this fight to right the ship of environmental policy in the late 1960s, it was a story that would be played out in the streets and on college campuses in Canada, the U.S., Japan, and in the frigid Arctic waters off the coast of a sea otter sanctuary called Amchitka, Alaska. This is The Otters of Amchitka, Part 2, Milrow 69, and the Tsunami of Environmental Protest. And you are in the Cold War Vault. After the last test on Amchitka Island in 1965, called Longshot, 
it would have been clear that something very strange and very new was happening. If you want to get scholarly, the term for it would be transnational environmentalism, which at the time was revolutionary. But that's just the reality of the way we understand environmental causes today. I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, but it's important to understand that a multinational foundation of activism and ideology was formed that would be able to stand against nuclear testing on Amchitka, but also nuclear weapons production and storage all around the world, not to mention whaling on the high seas. For these forces, it was a very exciting time, and all very new. What's most important for the purposes of Cold War history is that during this period, there was a growing awareness that the impacts of government activity on Amchitka had moved beyond the simple matters of conservation. That is, it had moved beyond saving the birds and the otters from imminent tests, and had begun to impact individuals and communities outside of the confines of the Aleutians, or even Alaska. Protecting the environment, in the broadest sense, was no longer the job of conservationists alone, but of society as a whole. This marked the beginning of this new understanding that social and political awareness and activism was the root of the movement. What had been one or the other, when combined, became a brand new force. The concerns of the Amchitka protesters began as ecological. The birds, the otters, the land and sea resources exploited by overexposure to soldiers during operations in World War II. It was all about the ecology of the island, but it moved beyond that, beyond the politics of the state and even beyond the borders of the United States itself, and that's what I mean by transnational. This entire situation was about to be tested under stress because the Atomic Energy Commission planned the next Amchitka test for the fall of 1969. It would be called Milro, and would be a massive one megaton detonation to test the geological stability of the island in advance of even bigger tests. It was this testing of the island that agitated the resistance that was already firmly entrenched from the 1965 Longshot test. Because anything tested might just break. The faultless test of January 19, 1968 at the Central Nevada Test Area caused cracking and faulting and concerns that larger megaton tests might crack and vent into the atmosphere, causing a radiological incident. So the Milro test was slated for Amchitka. But it isn't as if Amchitka is or was geologically stable. It's actually one of the most geologically dynamic areas in the world. Mike Gravel, who was a freshman senator from Alaska, became one of the most vocal opponents of nuclear testing at Amchitka. In September 1969, Gravel asked the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to support his request for a delay of Milro. He also leveled criticism at the AEC for its secrecy. He said, quote, 
A review of recent history leaves the unmistakable impression that the AEC has been less than candid in its public assessment of the risk and less than completely reliable in its estimates of the dangers. Perhaps more importantly for the future of organized protest, Gravel also testified that going ahead with the test might damage international relations. This was largely because, despite the denials of the AEC, there was a chance that the test would dislodge a fault and cause a tsunami. In a letter to the New York Times on July 31, 1969, Gravel said that, quote, The article quotes Atomic Energy Commission scientists as saying an earthquake is impossible. Nonsense. I have in my possession a dozen AEC documents stating the opposite. Privately, the Atomic Energy Commission responded to this criticism in internal memos and admitted that this might be, quote, the first intimation that there might be opposition to the test on other than conservationist grounds. Despite this, the AEC moved forward as if the resistance to the test remained strictly conservationist. Along with the film The Warm Coat, the documentary discussed in the last episode about the generous treatment and relocation of sea otters, the AEC documentary film of the test itself really takes on a serious conservationist feel compared to literally every other test film in the archive. Here are a couple of examples of the narration offered in the film. Another relic of World War II are the hundreds of telephone poles that provide a commanding perch for the eagles that populate the island. Protected by the Bald Eagle Act, these birds have little fear of the island's newest species, AEC. The bald eagle, who mates for life, may be observed roosting on the poles. Despite these conservationist, friendly lines of narration, it was clear that the Aleutian Islands had become ground zero for a new kind of protest. And it wasn't just about the welfare of the sea otters or the bald eagles. Those compartmentalized protests were easily managed, but now that the ecological had become part of the political, the magnitude of the tidal wave of discontent was something almost impossible for authorities to effectively navigate. Mike Gravel was exceedingly clear in outlining his reasons for opposing Milrow. Each reason had an ecological foundation, absolutely but also clearly contained a policy component. Each simultaneously raised concern over ecological impacts and issues, but also suggested the international policy implications of testing in the Aleutians. The dual nature of these concerns, domestic and international, and ecological and political, would become the essence of the emerging movement. The first and foremost worry, if the least likely, was that the test could trigger a tsunami by initiating an earthquake. Gravel and other politicians from Alaska certainly maintained a domestic concern about the impact of a tsunami on the coastal areas of the state. 
actually a major tsunami arising from the Good Friday earthquake of 1964 had killed more than a hundred people and done millions of dollars in damage. But Gravel pointed to concerns over tsunamis that might strike the coasts of Canada, Russia, Japan, and the rest of the United States farther down the Pacific. This is what made it a matter of international significance. The second and third issues raised were the possibilities of leaking radioactive debris into the water and the air. Worry about the possible atmospheric release of radiation was of domestic concern to Gravel's constituents, obviously, but a point that was raised time and time again was that a venting of radiation might drift over the Soviet Union and violate the Test Ban Treaty of 1963, which would obviously increase tensions between the superpowers because the Soviets weren't exactly enthusiastic about Amchitka anyway, and it might even cause a possible breakdown in the ongoing arms reduction negotiations. This new global consciousness was not just limited to those in the political establishment. In advance of the Milrow test of 1969, Alaska and Canada were fertile ground for grassroots groups opposed to the Amchitka program on a variety of grounds. Several of these groups also acquired a new international character, blending local and statewide conservation issues with international political and military concerns, specifically regarding nuclear war. While conservationists had dominated the debate through Longshot in 1965, larger political issues presented themselves in the months prior to Milrow. These issues were taken up by groups which might be called environmentalist in so much as they were advocates for policy reform in addition to ecological protection. One of those groups, Democrats for Issues and Action, DIA, sent two resolutions to the governor of Alaska in mid-1969. The first called for a commission to review the potential effects of Milrow on the geology and wildlife of the area. This call for a policy review before the government's decision was ambitious for the time. The governor of Alaska didn't have the authority to convene a panel of experts to sit in judgment of federal nuclear testing. Though, interestingly, this idea of assessing environmental impacts before decisions were made would become a core component of the National Environmental Policy Act I spoke of earlier. The second resolution sent up by DIA was even more radical. It was a call to divert funding from the anti-ballistic missile defense system to a variety of domestic causes, including Alaskan conservation. By doing this, the group linked the welfare of the environment to military policy and international nuclear arms control issues, and that was a very radical first. Not really satisfied with the impossible demands of the DIA, the Save Our State Committee, SOS, was formed out of DIA membership and continued the protest against Milrow. SOS took out a full-page ad in the Anchorage Daily News 
and organized both a march to the state courthouse during AEC testimony to the state legislature and a youth protest on the day prior to the Milrow test in a downtown park. The AEC was skeptical and wrote of the protests with almost sarcastic contempt. In an internal publication on public relations and coping with this newly emerging popular protest, the agency wrote of the whole affair, The Save Our State group made no showing of strength in Alaska. SOS managed to recruit 32 pickets to march at the AEC briefing of the Legislative Council, but within an hour, the group had shrunk to six, amid complaints about the pay. An SOS-organized vigil of youthful protesters against Milrow attracted only about 100 people. The environmental consciousness was growing, and the organizations that embodied it were gaining momentum, if slowly, and with only a few hundred members at a time. While the AEC could dismiss their influence or impact on a case-by-case basis, as they had with Senator Gravel, or the demands of the DIA, or the protest for pay action of the Save Our State Committee, the larger movement was undeniable, and it was spiraling out of their control. In the same AEC publication that spoke so scornfully of the SOS, other protests were treated with far more reserved caution. Quote, In Alaska, there was none of the type of impassioned protest action which was promoted in Canada and British Columbia, with marches on U.S. consulates and attempts to block the border. What this memo refers to is something that was heavily reported in Canada, Japan, the Soviet Union, and throughout Europe. But it seems almost entirely quashed in the United States media. Relegated to just a couple of inches of column space instead of front page headline news. In the days before Milrow, the protests grew in Canada, and stories of official and popular protest made their way around the world. On September 29th, three days before the detonation, Mayor George McKnight of Port Alberni, British Columbia, sent a personal letter to U.S. President Richard Nixon calling for, quote, a halt to this madness. Without very much emotional restraint, the mayor went on to write, I appeal to you on behalf of all of those who live on the Pacific Rim, be they Canadians, Americans, Japanese, Russians, or any others in their millions to put a stop to this plan. Along with the vocal and visible protests of Mike Gravel, which were ongoing, Senator Danny Noe of Hawaii also penned a personal letter to Nixon in opposition of the test. In London, the Times reported that conservationists were up in arms and explained that the U.S. Department of the Interior was powerless to stop the test despite widespread protests. By the 1st of October, the government of Canada threatened to bill the United States for any damage resulting from Milrow, including from a catastrophic tsunami. This came at the same time as formal protests from Canada and Japan. Official protests from the Soviet Union on both ecological and political grounds came in the hours before the test, when Izvestia commentator O. Vasiliev wrote 
that the Milrow test posed a danger of setting off earthquakes and tidal waves and constituted a U.S. escalation of the arms race. So this nuclear test on a remote Aleutian island had truly become a focus of Cold War tensions. This rupture in international accord, particularly between Canada and the United States, was significant. The mayor of the Greater Victoria Municipality of Saanich in British Columbia succinctly summarized the rift that Alaskan nuclear testing had caused. He said, It isn't realized to what extent this testing is harming Canadian-U.S. relations. I don't recall in my lifetime an incident which has put such stress on the friendship which Canadians have held for America. On September 29th, the street and sidewalks in front of the United States Consulate in Vancouver were filled with protesters. Organized by the Society for Pollution and Environmental Control, SPAC, and the Canadian Voice of Women for Peace, Placards carried by protesters read, It's your fault if our fault goes, and don't make a wave. A phrase which had been coined by Robert Hunter, the Vancouver-based journalist and environmental activist who will appear in our story again in a very big way. A blockade of U.S.-Canada border crossings was planned for October 1st and involved 70 Canadian universities. Organizers said that they wanted the blockade to extend from British Columbia to Nova Scotia. Norman Wright, the student council president of the University of Victoria and one of the organizers, sent a telegram to the White House explaining the blockade as a protest. Quote, against unilateral action by the U.S. in the nuclear explosion at Amchitka and in concern over the possible environmental poisoning and disruption of the ecological balance. In British Columbia alone, 7,000 students participated in the protest. The Blue Water Bridge, crossing between Michigan and Ontario, was blocked by 500 students. 200 more blocked the Rainbow Bridge at Niagara Falls, and 150 blocked the Ontario-Minnesota border crossing. Six students were arrested on the Ambassador Bridge at Detroit. Letters were given to U.S. customs officials, and leaflets were passed out to cars stuck on the bridge, which stated that the risks of the Milrow test included the familiar earthquakes and tidal waves, but also the fresh accusation that the actions of the U.S. government were an infringement on human rights and Canadian sovereignty. In a still bigger protest, the 136,000-member British Columbia Federation of Labor joined in the chorus of anti-Milrow activism and called for an indefinite postponement of the test. A statement issued by the Federation warned of, quote, unexpected violent tidal waves, which could cause serious damage and threaten lives. A legal intervention was attempted by the United Church of Canada, which tried to initiate injunction proceedings against the Atomic Energy Commission through U.S. legal authorities. 
These sudden and widespread protests were deeply unsettling for government agencies that had grown used to ruling the nuclear roost. In an interesting remnant of McCarthy-esque Americanism, the governor of Alaska, Keith Miller, who had been a supporter of the Amchitka tests, found all of the emerging protests suspicious. He said, I am becoming increasingly convinced that the sudden surge of outcry against the Amchitka test is the result of a well-financed, highly organized international movement. Neither particularly well-financed nor highly organized, it was an international movement. While not the vast communist conspiracy he no doubt imagined, environmentalism had become an international affair and its seed was Amchitka. This episode was written and produced by DJ Kinney. That is me. Music you've heard on this show was by Blue Dot Sessions, PC3, Rod Hamilton and Tiffany Seal, and Lately Kind of Yeah. Thanks for all of your support on Facebook and Twitter. Find The Vault there at Cold War Vault. It does get kind of lonely down here. You can see images and show notes for this episode and all the rest at coldwarvault.com. And please like and subscribe on iTunes. That's really the best way to support the show. Until next time.